Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by my Hall of Fame co-host, Jim Cott. This is episode 172 and one of our most popular shows, Cott's Corner. Before we get going with our show and, and start entertaining, I just want to have a message to our audience. And actually, that song we just played, Zach Brown, that's courtesy of Kevin Kernan. He fell in love with the lyrics a couple weeks back and pushed it to me on a text message and said, hey, we got to get this thing on our show. So we have now as part of Zach Brown on our show here. But to our 17,000 subscribers, we just eclipsed that mark this morning. Please continue to download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. Um, we're battling the the analytics, and then we're going to address that a little bit in the show today, too, uh, of the podcast world, a lot like baseball does. So continue to rate and review us so we can win those battles and keep providing you great content every week. Get us on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. If you have another streaming device, let me know, and I'll subscribe to it. Hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or all three. Every morning, I get back to one person live on Facebook. I get everybody else privately. 72 countries still. We're hovering at 72 now. I'm not sure how much further we can grow, but uh, in that regard, but 72 countries, grassroots baseball, all the way to Major League Baseball front offices. And very simply, we're just trying to build better baseball IQs out there. And I know for a fact you do that every week for us, Jim, but Jim Cott, welcome back to your show. Glad to have you every week. I look forward to us getting together once a week and we're going to get a chance to meet each other in person finally this week. Yeah, heading north, and I'll make a little stop off at Myrtle Beach. We'll get a chance to cross paths, maybe have a little afternoon coffee. But, uh, yeah, Dave, I'm enjoying this. It, it gives me a chance to vent a little bit as well as uh, maybe pass on some information that listeners were not aware of or maybe that they can uh, pass on to their sons and daughters if they're actually players. It could be helpful. So it's a it's a nice little format to be a part of. Yeah, and I know I'm appreciative of it. I feel like I get smarter every week and love the relationship that we're developing on and off the air, and our audience is loving what you bring to them. So we thank you for that. Um, we'll get going. To, we have a number of things we were going to talk about today, but why, why don't we talk about the last thing we, we mentioned, which was change of scenery, that psychology of, uh, of baseball, where it's such a, an unforgiving sport sometimes, and Often it's not a change of your swing, not a change of how you throw. It's just finding a new location. What, are, are you seeing players out there that are going through that? And did you go through that in your career? What, what's the psychology behind all that? Yeah, what, what piqued my curiosity about that was reading an article in the uh, Minneapolis Tribune about what a kind of a folk hero Joey Gallo has become. And uh, Joey Gallo, of course, has been a, a gold glove outfielder. He's been kind of the model type player for today's game. He strikes out a lot. He hits a lot of home runs, but he has really been productive uh, for the Twins. And I thought there's a, there's a perfect example of maybe somebody in an organization where the expectations were so high and they put a lot of, or the, the player put a lot of self-induced pressure on himself and a little change of scenery, and he turns into a very productive player. And I thought back to my own career in the mid-'70s when the Twins kind of thought I was done, and the White Sox, surprisingly, uh, I didn't think they'd have any interest, and they picked up my contract. And the next thing you know, with the help of uh, of Johnny Sane and uh, Chuck Tanner, uh, you know, I kind of revitalized my career and went on to pitch for almost another decade. So. You know, uh, statistics, and I, I've kind of I've decided that I'm not going to call them uh, analytics or metrics anymore. I don't want to glorify what they've done to the game, 
So they are statistics and they always have been. That's all they are. And statistics can't tell you what a, how a player is going to perform if you put him in a different atmosphere. I think of Rich Hill, veteran left-hand pitcher who did that. Uh, there's probably a lot of them out there if we scour the uh, the back the box scores of guys who just kind of plotted along in one organization and then they got to another one and they fit and they became very productive. I think that maybe uh, maybe Tampa would be an example of that. I know the Cardinals had Randy Arozarena and uh, they they didn't have any room for him or didn't think he could play, I guess. And all of a sudden, bingo, he's over in Tampa and he's yeah. a star. Yeah. One of my favorites, Cody Bellinger. Uh, yeah. Great, great start with the Dodgers. Then he hit sky high. Then nobody epitomized sky high and rock bottom more than he did in such a short period of time. And now he's with the Cubs and he's, he's really doing well. He's got the swing back. Tremendous athlete in the field and play first yeah. base. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes that's it. You know, you just get, uh, and of course the New York market has been uh, famous for that. Maybe Boston as well as where the expectations are so high and, uh, and Philadelphia would come under that category, you know, enthusiastic fans and uh, some players, you know, can't handle those expectations, but you put them in a different atmosphere. Uh, another name quickly comes to mind and that's Carl Pavano. Uh, you know, he got a big contract with the Yankees. Uh, he wasn't performing well. All of a sudden, with the Twins, he becomes like a, a Cy Young candidate. Uh, yeah. That does have a lot to do with, uh, with the player's performance. And uh, statistics cannot, uh, cannot really put a number on that. I think it's just the, the intelligence of general managers, at least in the past. I think a lot of general managers today are are tied into whatever statistical information their department hands down to them. But, you know, the eye test of the real good old baseball uh, general managers could uh, could make decisions like that. Yeah. Well, it takes a guy that played the game who went, you know, we've all gone through that from time to time, whether it's a change of ballpark. We, some people hit better or pitch better in certain yeah. ways. It can be small, uh, kind of a microcosm, but the macro – I just think it takes a guy, like you said, that's got that gut, that played it, that went through it and says, I, I've got a feeling about this guy. Everything's in place. Uh, maybe if we just give him the confidence, uh, things can change. What was it in your case? Was it, a, I know you mentioned Johnny Sane. You've mentioned him uh, as, as a big influence on your career on the show quite a bit. Yeah, it, it was a combination. I had, uh, I broke my wrist in uh, 72, sliding into second base halfway through the year. I was having a really good year. So the rest of that year is shot. And then I came back the next year and, um, you know, I was just not not pitching the way I did the year before. A big reason was the, the wrist injury took my screwball away from me. I had a really good screwball in 72. I just picked it up with the help of Marv Grissom, who was my pitching coach at that time. And uh, then I could kind of feel my arm getting stronger. It was even a little carryover from uh, the injury I had in 67, a little of the pre-Tommy John surgery, a little elbow injury. I remember telling Buck Rogers, you know, the Twins think I'm done. I don't blame them. I'm not pitching well, but I'm not. I, I could just sense I had a lot more there. And I got in the right situation in Chicago with Johnny Sane and Chuck Tanner and, and Roland Heeman, the general manager, who all really believed in me and believed I had a lot more left and, uh, and, you know, it turned out they were right. But you need that kind of a boost or a change of scenery sometimes. Well, think about yours. That's 10 extra years. 
that's, yeah. that's, that's not like it was 10 games. That's, that's, that's quite a run after that. So I, I would like to challenge our audience. If I know we we've named a few guys, but uh, hit us up on Facebook. Let, give us a list of other names that, that you guys know that have changed scenery that, that we want to just pay tribute to. And uh, we'll certainly take a look at that online once they do it. What, um, you know, I was taking a look at some some pitchers, uh, guys who've been in the league a long time, and a phrase got thrown up to me on on social media. And as a pitcher, I thought you'd be better suited to to describe it. They the, the phrase was pitching backwards, and Zach Gallon was the was the topic. He's been throwing great this year, um, kind of pitching a little bit Maddox like, where um, not not so much uh, leading with the, the fastball in, but nipping at the corners and whatnot. Could you, could you explain that to artists, what pitching backwards means? I know you, I think you went through it too later in your career, correct? Well, I, I remember when I joined the Yankees and I, I didn't get a chance to pitch to uh, the great late Thurman Munson very much, but gosh, I love pitching to him and we became good buddies. And so one night uh, he was catching me and I came in in relief. We were on the mound. He said, Kate, we're going to pitch backwards tonight. He said, fastball counts were throwing breaking balls. Breaking ball counts were throwing fastballs. I said, tugboat. That was his nickname. I said, tugboat, that's not pitching backwards. That's pitching the way you should. So, you know, pitching backwards would be described as, let's say it's a 2-0 and count on the hitter, and he's anticipating a fastball. And most young pitchers maybe don't have good command of their breaking pitches. So on 2-0, and they're going to throw a fastball. And so the key to successful pitching is being able to control those off-speed pitches and throw them over the plate when you're in hitter's counts. And the reverse would be, okay, now you've got a hitter. I think I told the story on one of our previous podcasts that Phil Roof was such a favorite catcher of mine. And Willie Horton was a lethal fastball hitter. Uh, and I got him in a, a two and two count. And I think he fouled off a pitch or two. And I thought, well, you know, I know Willie does not expect a fastball right now from me. You know, that wasn't my premier. I mean, I still used it a lot, but it wasn't a power pitch. And I thought to myself, now's the time that I can slip a fastball by Willie Horton. And I looked down at Phil Roof at the fastball side. Well, that would be kind of a way of, of people would say pitching backwards to throw a, a fastball where everybody kind of anticipated a breaking ball and, and vice versa. And that's that's one of the key. That's why they call it pitching and not throwing, because you, you have to learn to change your pattern, uh, not be predictable, particularly if in the big leagues year after year and you're facing the hitters, same hitters a lot. Uh Eventually, if you continue to pitch to what they, th- what you think is their weakness, it's going to become their strength because they see it all the time. So you have to mix that up, and kind of a combination of that would be what I think some people might say pitching backwards. No, I think that's a great and, and to kind of go off the the theme you mentioned, and I'll I'll do the same terminology that you. I'm committed to that as well. Statistics have made us more predictable, have they not? Have made us more what? Predictable. Oh, no question. Yeah, the statistics that come down that will say this is the way you need to pitch so-and-so. And, and, you know, if they haven't been uh, in the field of play, on the field of play, I always, even in the broadcast booth, my my play-by-play partners would once in a while would say in a key situation, what would you throw them right now? I said, I have no idea. But if I'm on the mound, the pitcher and, and my catcher, we would know. 
because we're in the flow of the game. And, uh, you know, you, you'd kind of know at that particular time, I don't care what the statistics said, it would be what my gut said and what the way I pitched this hitter, maybe the previous two at-bats, that would dictate uh, how I might pitch him in the third at-bat. I, I remember the first time I asked you that question like that on, on our show. It may have been our first episode. And I was impressed by that answer because if anybody should have the right to make a guess, it's yourself uh, in the broadcast booth. Hall of Fame pitcher, uh, success over decades. Uh, but we see so often guys with no credentials making predictions like that as if they were on the mound when maybe the last time they were on the mound was a wiffle ball game when they were 12. Right. Well, it's it's even like, uh, you know, the catchers, catchers make, and, and Tim McCarver always says this, tech catcher makes a suggestion. And and then it's up to the pitcher. Like uh, I coached Joe Price in, in Cincinnati, and uh, Joe gave up a couple home runs to Tony Pena on breaking balls. And I said uh, the next day, I said, Joe, what were you thinking there? Because Tony Pena had rather a slow bat. He was not a good fastball hitter, but he, he feasts on breaking pitches. And Joe said, well, Dan Billardello, that's the sign he called. I said, Joe, your, your head is on a swivel. It works sideways and up and down. You shake yes or no, because when I picked up the paper, it didn't say losing catcher. It's a losing pitcher. Right. Good point. So you're, you're the guy that owns your performance and you have to be make the ultimate decision of what pitch to throw. I don't care what the statistics say. I don't care what your manager would say. You're the guy with the ball in your hand and it's going to be your win or your loss. Now, I'm sure you had great relationships with all your catchers, but was there one guy in particular that everything he threw down, it was just the same thing you were thinking? You guys were just that in sync. Well, that doesn't happen all the time, but I know, you know, early on in my career, I put a lot of faith in Earl Batty because I was a young pitcher. He was a veteran catcher, and I trusted him. And then along came Johnny Roseboro. Uh, Jerry Zimmerman was a backup catcher that really had a good feel for, you know, calling a game based on what my stuff was that day. And then uh, Phil Roof, when I was in, in Minnesota, Phil and I just hit it off so well because – Again, uh, you know, catchers, good catchers don't call a game based on what they can't hit, which a lot of catchers can do. Well, I can't hit a curveball in this situation, so I think I'll, I'll call for a curve. Well, good catchers can kind of feel what the pitcher's stuff is, what works for him, what are the go-to pitches in key situations for him. And so a combination of all those names I mentioned were, were always very helpful to me. I had 39 uh, different catchers in my career. And, uh, you know, you, you try to develop a, a great relationship with all of them. Some of them as a relief pitcher, you really don't pitch to that often. But, you know, as a starter, I pitched to Earl a lot. Uh, and then uh, Bob Boone and Johnny Oates in uh, Philadelphia. Uh, Brian Downing was a new catcher in, in uh, Chicago when I got traded there. So, uh, you know, at that particular point, you, you kind of learn as a veteran pitcher to call your own game, uh, keep it simple. And we didn't have very many, Brian and I, sometimes we'd try to start the game and go through a few innings without any signs at all. If I wanted to throw a breaking ball, I'd wipe down my pant leg or on the right side or left side, and that would switch it from a fastball to a, to a breaking ball. Yeah. Uh, now, on the other side of that, were there – 
any catchers that took a little longer than you would you have liked to kind of get that song and dance together? Uh, yeah, there there were some. It's not that they it's not that they weren't trying. They, there were some catchers were more hitter first, catcher second. Sure. Uh, George Mitterwald caught a lot of my games in uh, in Minnesota, and uh, you know we got uh, we got along fine. But George, you know, might have a tendency to call from a hitter standpoint, not a pitcher standpoint, and and that's what he was as a catcher. He was known more as a hitter. Uh, so if you find that combination of a good catcher and a good hitter, I think Johnny Bench sort of began to turn that around for catchers, and yeah. all of a sudden you had to become a a power hitter and a productive hitter. Before that, you could hit uh, 200 and be a be a good regular catcher because it depended on how you handled the pitching staff, how you called games. Yeah, you got two of those guys. You mentioned Thurman Munson as well, two middle of the lineup. Catcher, same era. Actually, I guess unofficial rivals, so to speak, yeah. during their time. So, uh, like, for instance, a young kid coming up nowadays, my older son's a pitcher, my younger son's a catcher they're growing up in a really tough time for learning how to uh, think the game. I don't mean to be redundant with the phrases, but what kind of advice would you give them to not fall into this mode of robotic pitching and catching? Well, I think, you know, it, 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 you have to have coaches that are secure enough to let the catcher call the game and let the pitcher kind of decide what he wants to throw. But in youth baseball, and I think even in college baseball, so many of the pitches are now called by the coach. Yeah. And, you know, you might be on the mound and you've got a ball that just, every ball feels a little bit different. So maybe one ball feels a little bit bigger. The seams are kind of low. It's not the kind of ball you're going to throw a breaking ball, but yet the, the side comes in from the bench, curveball. I, I don't want to throw a curveball. So if you're in college or high school or youth ball, uh, you're you're not going to be able to buck the coach for what he says. And I think that's sad. I think that the pitcher and catcher uh, that day should be in charge if they've done their homework before the game and leading up to that game, if you're in the big leagues and you're seeing these hitters on an everyday basis and you catch this pitcher time after time, I'm sure with Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina, I mean, they they just trusted one another, and it was easy for them. Uh, you know, Adam probably trusted what Yadi called that day, but uh, that's the kind of trust you have to put in your pitcher and catcher to allow them to really reach their full potential. Well, it's, uh, you're talking to both of my boys' coaches because I coach them both together. So Tanner, and I won't name the name of the college or the player, but uh... – he got in a conversation with a Division One college catcher about catching. He was asking, and he asked him about calling a game. And the kid, uh, the young man, said exactly what you said. I haven't called a game, um, maybe maybe a handful in my life. And he said, "How about you?" He's, and Tanner said, "I've called and charted two hundred plus." And he's only if he just turned fourteen. Good, good. And uh, we're going to keep him on that track because it's exactly. Well, good for you. That's good to hear. That's how you, you know, learn. But before before we forget it, I had it kind of at the top of my topic list, and I yeah. want to make sure that uh, that I hit on this because uh, I got a call from my friend Frank Koppenbarger. Frank was involved with the Cardinals when I was there. He was not a player, and then with the Phillies, and he ended up being director of team travel. And he just loves the game, and so he's uh, 
Uh, he's coaching a high school baseball team right now. And the other day, his, uh, his team was down five to nothing. And his shortstop had made two errors. And now they're in like the fifth inning of a seven-inning game. And the kid hits a triple. And he slides into third and he gets up and he does one of those shoot an arrow into the sky. Oh, yeah. And puts yeah. his hands up and celebrates. And, you know, it just got under Frank's skin and I don't blame him. So he had quite a talk with the young man when he came in. You know, you just don't do that. And I'm saying, I'm thinking, you know, that's where the big league players don't realize with some of the stuff, some of the antics that they have, how they're influencing these young kids, because the young kids think, well, I see Fernando Tastiche, you know, doing a Mexican hat dance at second base, and and that's a good thing to do, so I think I'll do it. And, uh, and I think that's something that they lose sight of, of how they're influencing the behavior, influencing the behavior of, of young players. And I think you mentioned to me the was there a kid that got the broom out in the handshake line? Yeah, I, I texted you about that in the California high school game. He brought the broom in front of the line. And the part that bothered me was that 20 other teammates saw him do it and four coaches saw him do it. Just walk out there. They had plenty of time to stop him. And yeah. he swept the plate off as if, you know, I get, they must have swept him in the series and uh, ended up in a bench-clearing brawl. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, that's that's kind of the behavior that's happening in a lot of our youth sports. And so, I mean, it's even to the point where there's shootings that have taken place. And, and I think that's where we've kind of lost our way in, in understanding the real purpose of the amateur game. I mean, if you honestly address a college team, a high school team as a coach, and you don't want to be negative, but you do have to say there's probably only – X percent of all of you in this town that are going to play in the big leagues. We hope that all of you do, but the percentages say differently. So what you have to understand is, you know, learn to enjoy sports for what they are, make relationships, be a good teammate. And then if you become one of those, that's good enough and keep climbing the ladder and get there fine. But, uh, we, we need, I think, more of that mentality to really, and that goes right through to the parents. Yeah. You know, just to, uh, when you're out there, uh, you know, just sit back and watch your son or your daughter and, uh, you know, do the best they uh, can uh, and, and just enjoy the game for what it is. Yes. Yeah, it's not that you don't want them to win or get a hit. There's nothing wrong with that. But, you, you know, you take it to the extreme where there's so much pressure, I think, put on the kids sometimes by coaches or the parents that they, they lose sight of the fact that it is a game. And I think uh, um, even in the big leagues, the more I tried to treat it as a game, you know, I remember Tug McGraw and I talking often about uh, we'd be in the bullpen tight situation and and Tugger would get ready to go in and he'd say, you know, 10 years from now, nobody will even know what I did in this game. So let's go in pitch like we're in the sandbox, you know, we're 14 years old. And that's the kind of attitude you have to develop. That's easy to say, tougher to do, but you yep. have to try to do it. I like that approach. It takes the, the pressure off, gets you back to your roots. We, I often think these, even the pro players, spend more time perfecting the individual or group celebration than they do the actual act that leads up to the desire to celebrate the hitting, the catching, the throwing. 
Yeah, the, the handshakes too, the custom handshakes. And uh, I, I guess it's enjoyable for the fans. And I'm not a, you know, get off my lawn. I don't want you to appreciate what you're doing. But I think the most important thing when you're on that field is to devote, uh, especially if you're doing it for a living, you need to devote 100% of your time toward what's going on on the field. Uh, you know, I've always used the Pete Rose example. When Pete got a hit, I mean, he's he's running hard like it's going to be a double until that outfielder actually feels it and gets it in play. And then he's going to look around, where's the right fielder playing me? Is he playing kind of deep? Can I go from first to third on this one? And I, I think that some of the celebrations that players are doing is not allowing them to, to really concentrate on that. And I, I blame... Again, going back to whenever this started, I blame management, coaches, whoever they are. If they're tolerating this stuff and they're okay with it, well, then fine. I mean, you're hurting your ball club, but uh, as a former player and being raised to play the game in a different way, I it really annoys me. Yeah, well, you're, you're not alone. I'm with you. I'm with you on that. You mentioned Pete Rose, and you know, I remember growing up, he was in the middle of his career as I started watching baseball, but high energy. He was, his celebration was short. It was real. It may have been a little short fist pump, clap of the hands. I remember coming off of first base, he'd slam that ball down at the end of the inning. And I think the, the, the opponents couldn't stand that. But right. um, in, in, I want the kids to understand this. To me, that's an acceptable type of celebration. It's real. It's, it's a part of the play. It's short lived. It, it's, you know, that, that, that adrenaline pump. Can you give some examples like the Tatis, the Mexican hats? And I'm not looking to single people out, but just so the kids understand that are listening. Well, I, I think one of the most glaring examples of, of what these celebrations did to take a win away from a team is I was doing the World Baseball Classic uh, out in, I want to say it was in Dodger Stadium or San Francisco, and the Dutch team, which I was partial to because being Dutch. And first it was Jerks and Profar who they were playing Puerto Rico, he hit a single. And as he was running down the line, he looked in the dugout and he was pumping his hands up in the air. He rounded first base. He looked in the dugout again. Yadier Molina took the ball, threw down to first base, picked him off. And then another hitter, I, I can't remember. I hope it wasn't Xander Bogarts, but it was on the Dutch team. And they got on second base in the same inning, and they wandered off, and they were talking to the opposing shortstop. And Yachty fired down to second base, and he picked him off. And then the fourth guy in the lineup hits a home run. Oh, It's a solo home run. So the Dutch would have had probably a, a three- or four-run lead minimum. But those are examples of, of what, you know, celebrating can take your mind away from what's actually happening on the field, which is – I think what you're obligated to your teammates to pay the most attention to. And uh, that's sometimes what's happened. And also we've seen some injuries from it, like uh, yeah. Kingery Morales. And then of course the, the most flagrant or the most you know tragic one really was when Edwin Diaz's brother, I think, uh, you know, jumped on him and wanted to celebrate and ended up uh, ending his season. Right. Yeah. That's uh I, I see it at a lot of these youth games too. And you hit, you hit the nail on the head. I was asking for the, the players, but I should have asked for the parents and the coaches and the administrators to take a look at this stuff and, and yeah. uh, be the lead in that. And if you get a chance to take a look at that California high school 
Uh, yeah. Um, well, you know, switching to and things have been really positive this year, which is uh, which which is a good thing with the with the pace of play. But but then uh, you know the thing that really shocked me is when I started reading about the pitchers are now saying that the pitch clock is causing fatigue because they don't have enough time between pitches to recover. Even Max Scherzer was saying that he really has to be in top condition to give his team six innings, which doesn't sound a lot like Max. And these guys are in great condition. So I look at Mickey Lolich, who pitched for the Tigers in the 70s, and Mickey owned a donut shop, and he ate up a lot of the profits. He'll admit that. So Mickey was a little on the rotund side. You wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't put him in a weightlifting contest. So Mickey in 1971 pitched 376 innings in 29 complete games. And he was not your ideal physical fitness guy. Now, he could do that with like 10 seconds between pitches. I mean, I kind of laugh at it now to think that today with these guys being like the ultimate athletes condition-wise, and they're worried about uh, fatigue between pitches. And, you know, that's where some of these statistics and all the information from non-playing personnel, I think, get handed down. The thing that really triggered my annoyance with it is, is when I looked last night, there were three great pitching performances from young pitchers. Of course, Joe Ryan with the Twins is one of my favorites. When I first met him and interviewed him, I, I kind of predicted stardom for him from the get-go. He pitches six innings, allows one hit, boom, out of the game. Bryce Miller and Max Miller, they hook up, Seattle and Oakland. One of them's got a no-hitter. The other one, they come out of the game. And it is so sad to see that, that they're not allowing these pitchers to really pitch to their full potential because all of them are capable of pitching two or three more innings if necessary. How do you account for a comment like Scherzer's? Is do you think it's real? Is it mental? Is it? Well, yeah, I, I think it is because you know Max puts everything into every pitch, maximum effort, no pun intended. And I think being conditioned to have a little time to catch your breath, uh, yeah, it probably is affecting him because he's not used to working at that fast a pace. But you know, it all comes back to it's called pitching, not throwing. And as Rocco Baldelli told me in spring training, the Twins manager, we were, he was asking me about my fastball, how it moved and how fast it was or whatever. And he said, you know, every pitcher today throws every pitch almost full effort as hard as they can. And I said, I can't remember ever throwing a pitch as absolutely hard or fast as I could. We just thought it was stupid because you're – you're risking injury. So we wanted to find a, the old expression, throw within yourself. We wanted to find a cruising speed where you could kind of have minimum effort with maximum velocity like Mariano Rivera did. It's kind of sneaky, easy motion, and ball just came out of his hand. But uh, I think that ties into the fatigue factor is that guys are putting every bit of energy into every pitch maximum effort. And now, I mean, you look at, uh, I think you texted me about the Yankee roster and just not the Yankee roster, but uh, 
look at the Mets. They've they've been without Verlander. Carrasco's hurt. I mean, you start looking at the start of a season, and you're the general manager or manager, and you look at what your chances are, and you think, boy, we got a pretty good ball club here. And all of a sudden, 30 days in, a third of your team is is injured. And uh, I don't know how, why that's happening with these with these guys being bigger, stronger, faster today, have more at their disposal to to condition themselves. What's going wrong? Because we should not have that many injuries. Well, I wanted to ask you this question. I jotted it down when you when you sent me a note on on this pitching clock epidemic, let's call it, that these these guys are not adjusting to it. When you were a pitching coach, and I'll take you off the field and as as a coach, when you were a pitching coach, how did you condition your staff? Because your staffs never went through this. They didn't go through not being able to get through five innings. What were and I know it's different for each pitcher, but I mean you can pick one out or make it general. How did you prepare your guys physically? To do this, well, I, I know running has always been a great exercise for pitchers, and uh, you know they feel that they're you get your legs in shape running. I mean, if you're a runner, you like to run, that's fine. But my theory was way back when teams only had one field to work on in spring training, and they had all these pitchers in camp standing around the outfield, and they say, "What are we going to do with the pitchers?" Well, let's take them over to the foul line and run them, and. Uh, and so that's how pitchers began to run. We always used to use the expression, you know, uh, Jesse Owens or in more modern times, Carl Lewis or Usain Bolt. They were good runners, but they never won any games. Right. Well, <laughs> the, the main the main emphasis I got from, from coaches like Johnny saying, I conditioned my legs by pitching, by fielding ground balls, sometimes on an exercise bike. But when you field a ground ball, and take that hop step and throw it to first base, you're using your legs like you do when you pitch. If you go down to the mound every day and not maximum effort with your arm, but if you use your legs like you're going to in a game, you will eventually condition your legs uh, to pitch nine innings. And uh, so I, I encourage my pitchers to try to do a little throwing every day. I didn't like running... When I coached in Cincinnati and a lot of the parks in the National League were that way because they're turf. And a lot of guys end up getting uh, back injuries from from hitting the ground. Where it, where it taught me personally in, in my own career was back in uh, 1962 in July, uh, I took a one hopper uh, off in my mouth, off, off my teeth, skipped off the grass, Bubba Morton hit it. I was in position to feel it, but it skidded right over my glove, knocked these teeth out, and uh, I came out of the game. I think it was the sixth inning, and uh, that was a Tuesday night, and my next start was Saturday in Cleveland. So for the younger fans, they would not have, uh, listeners, they wouldn't have heard of Herb Score, but Herb Score was rookie of the year in 55. He was a brilliant, hard-throwing left-hand pitcher. And he took a line drive off his uh, eye socket from Gil McDougal back in, I think, 56 or 57. His career was never the same. So between that start, we were doing our running. It was obligatory. I couldn't buck the system. I had to do a certain amount of running. And I told our pitching coach, I said, you know, I really can't do this running because I said, when my heel hits the ground and I've got those stitches in my mouth, I can you know, it jars me. It's painful. And I said, I, I can throw. I'm doing my throwing. I threw a little every day. And, uh, and it's Gordon Maltzberger. And Maltz, he says, well, 
okay, you can pitch. But he said, you know, you're, you're going to feel it. You're going to get tired in those late innings. Your legs aren't going to be in shape. You're not doing your running. Well, if you want to look it up on RetroSheet, uh, first of all, my next start, Saturday afternoon, the first two balls were hit right back at me, which cured me from, you know, flinching and being spooked by it. And my next four starts, two of which were extra innings, were all complete games. And so I kiddingly would poke the bear with Malsey. I said, Malsey, I haven't run a sprint in three weeks, and I got four complete games, and my legs never felt better. So what's the deal with all this running? Yeah. And and so what I but I what I did, and Johnny Sane was a big proponent of that, is yeah, you have to find a way to get your legs in condition. And for us, the best way to do it was off the pitching mound. Yeah. Well, you you hit on a, a theme that Ted Kubiak hits on with fielding. Uh, Ted, former Oakland A, during their back-to-back-to-back World Series. We, we, we talk a few times a week, and he listens to every show. He's been on twice with us. He is a, a big proponent of if you want to get stronger as a fielder, a better-conditioned fielder, then field ground balls. Get out there and build your legs up that way. And uh, do, do you think maybe these these modern-day freakoid athletes, they may be bigger, stronger, faster, but they're maybe not in the right way? Oh, I, I, exactly right. They're maybe not conditioning themselves baseball-wise. It's interesting you mentioned the name Ted Kubiak. Ted Kubiak, who was not a power hitter, but he did take me deep in Oakland one day. I think I gave up back-to-back-to-back home runs, and he was one of the three. But when the A's were still in Kansas City, and Ted was a shortstop there, I would watch him field ground balls during batting practice because he was as smooth as any infielder you'd want to see. <laughs> That's why when you mentioned that name, I'll always remember that name for what a, what a slick fielding uh, infielder he was. And, of course, I was fortunate as the years went on to <clears throat> play with great shortstops and Larry Bow in Philadelphia and then Ozzie in uh, in St. Louis, and that's what I used to do with Ozzy. I would go out off the turf, and they would allow me to do that as a pitcher because I'd keep my – they wouldn't allow pitchers on the infield a lot, but I'd keep my throwing hand behind me and field them one-handed. But I love to just go out and field ground balls with Ozzy. Yeah. And, you know, you move left to right, you use your legs. And just like Ted is saying, if you, if you want to get your legs in condition, uh, probably the same as playing nine innings. You know, nowadays – uh, players, position players, they don't really play nine innings in spring training as much as they did uh, years ago. And if you're going to get in condition to play nine innings during the season, uh, then you need to do it in spring training too. Yeah, I, I agree. And you would think the faster, the pitchers working faster would benefit the infielders, but we're still seeing the same number of position player injuries. I think it's the same problem you mentioned with pitching. You see these hitters with max velocity swings as well. And I can honestly say I didn't play as long as you did, not at the high level. I got three years of minor league baseball, but I don't ever think in my life, right-handed or left-handed, I took a max swing. Yeah. And now, you know, I asked Charlie Manuel about this when Charlie was still managing the Phillies and I was doing TV and I began to see these uh, cages that all the new stadiums had underneath where guys could just take batting practice time after time. And I started reading about the oblique injury. And the only thing I knew about oblique is I think I heard it in geometry class when I was in school. <laughs> uh, 
and I never heard about pulling an oblique. When I began to watch these hitters swing full bore, time after time, every day, I said to Charlie, don't, don't you think guys are taking too much batting practice? And of course, Charlie was a hitting machine and he'd always say, Kitty, no, you, you could never hit enough. Well, I, I think you can. I think you can. I know Dick Allen, Dick Allen would take a couple swings. He'd hit one to right, one to center, one to left, come in the clubhouse. And he'd say, uh, who's pitching for them tonight? You know, that was it. And he'd be ready in the first inning. But I, I agree with you. I think some of these injuries might be from actually uh, overtraining or over practicing as uh, as hitters. You uh, by the by the time you do that that often that hard by the end of the season, it has to cause a little fatigue. Oh, and, and I'll admit the first I had little to no power, um, so my swings were based on contact. But these when, whenever and I didn't miss many balls because of that. But whenever I did miss a ball, it hurt. It hurts your body. I can't imagine these max velocity swings who pride themselves on home runners or swing and miss. That's got to hurt your body every time they do that. Yeah. I remember when I, when I got into announcing, particularly full-time uh, with the Yankees and the, uh, and the, the Twins in the late 80s, early 90s, and the Yankees for, for 13 years starting in the mid-90s. And I would go down and stand behind the batting cage. And I could just remember – in my playing days where guys would, you know, like poke the ball to different fields. Rod Carew's batting practice session was when you looked in the outfield and there's usually, we'll say there's four outfielders, five outfielders, and then there's seven or eight pitchers scattered around there. He tried to hit one to everyone in the outfield, you know, move the ball around like that, just almost like he was playing pepper, but hitting it a little further. And uh, very few, very few guys, even Harmon, Killebrew, he might hit a few balls over the fence, but mainly it was just kind of swing to get loose and they all had their little routine. But now all of a sudden I'm watching batting practice starting in the, say, the late 90s. And uh, it's like watching home run derby. Everybody is swinging as hard as they can and trying to hit it out of the ballpark and I would think that might have a, a some kind of a influence on some of the injuries we're seeing. Yeah, and that's when you got to handle the bat, like you said with Rod Carew. Nine out of ten of your hits in BP should be base hits in the game, and yeah, um, that that's kind of a rule of thumb. Well, I had I wanted to, I wanted to ask your opinion if you're okay transitioning to some modern pitchers. Uh, you know the the records the the win records aren't going to be because of what we're talking about as high that that 300 win mark uh, or that you know, even 250. Uh, where, where do you think guys like a Kershaw, Verlander, Scherzer, Granke, will, will they um, go down as greats of all time? Um, you know, d- d- will their numbers hurt them? Will modern day pitching tactics, I don't even call them strategies, tactics, will that hurt their status, do you think, long-term with the baseball? Uh, you know, I, I don't think so. I don't look at them that way. It's just that, you know, I couldn't compare – as great a uh, greater career as Clayton Kershaw has had, he's having a, a Hall of Fame career, as is uh, Scherzer. Uh, Grinky might might be. I mean, these are uh, Verlander. Did you mention? Did we mention? Yeah, Verlander. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I think you have to go era by era. Like you're not going to see anybody do what. Uh, what Mickey Lovich did and pitch 376 innings, or you're not going to see what Koufax did. And that's why you can't compare pitcher to pitcher. But in their era, 
they were the best. They're the best on their team. They were the best in the league year after year. And they're pitching on a five-man rotation. They're pitching in a time when the game is much more uh, specialized. So I don't think you hold that against them, even as well as you shouldn't hold it against those of us in my era that had uh, we didn't have as high a winning percentages. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, like we might go 18. I went 18 and 14 one year. Well, that's a lot of losses. Well, we, we got to stay in the game until we gave up the lead run. Nowadays, they'll leave with the lead. And if you know, if the game is lost, it's one of the relief pitchers that takes the loss. So we figured in more decisions. But uh, I, I look at those guys and have the respect for them as Hall of Fame pitchers even though they were handled differently, it's not their fault. It's what the system's done. Yeah. And I ask you that tongue in cheek because I agree with you. I, I, I think this probably the last two weeks I've heard more often than I'd like uh, the pundits banging on Clayton Kershaw. Uh, some want some for his postseason. He hasn't had a lot of success there, uh, but you watch him pitch now and he's as good as he ever was. Um, yeah. and I'm glad I, I, I knew you would articulate it well and I'm going to, encapsulate that and spit it back at the the pundits out there when they they start banging on these guys because you're right they're they're all-time greats i believe so it's kind of like looking at at barry bonds when he didn't have a great postseason mark when the pirates were hooking up with the braves right because he had a look at tom glavin and steve avery and uh kent merker i think they had another you know he was looking at some great left-hand pitchers and so that's got a lot to do with how you perform in postseason as well. So now I wouldn't hold that. Some guys have made a a big name for themselves by only producing in the postseason. And then, uh, you know, there are other guys like, say, Clayton, who's been a great uh, year-after-year pitcher. He just hasn't happened to have uh, great records yet in the the postseason. And if the Dodgers get there this year and he wins four or five games, why that's all going to – you know, that reputation will all turn around. I think I think it was David Price that had the same stigma put on him, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. And then all of a sudden he started pitching well, pitching great out of the bullpen for the uh, uh, for the Red Sox. But uh, yeah, I, I think uh, I think that's kind of unfair to to put him down because of his post uh, postseason mark. Yeah, he's got some great stuff. I love watching yeah. him watching him pitch. I've got one more for you. I know we've kept you here for a while. And then if you have any unfinished uh, topics, we can, we can cover those. But, uh, you know, we, we saw another Oakland team. First it was football. Now it's baseball. The Oakland A's moving to Vegas. Did you, you had a chance, I'm sure, to play in that, that Coliseum and that stadium. What's, what's so bad about Oakland, the stadium? They're drawing like 2,000 fans right now, by the way. And what makes it a tough draw out there? Well, I think the team wise, I mean, when they when they had those that run in the in the seventies, I remember in the late sixties when with the twins we were still we won our division sixty nine and seventy. Those were the first two years of divisional play. And uh we beat up on Kansas City quite a bit. And uh Harmon Killebrew and I would talk about, hey, look at Sal Bando, Campy Campanaris, Reggie Jackson. Joe Rudy, Vita Blue, these guys are going to be good. Well, all of a sudden, 72, 3, and 4, they win the World Series. Well, I think they were they were drawing pretty well then in Oakland, even though 
it's not the ideal ballpark to play. It's a big circle that was made for made for football like the old Cleveland ballpark. And then when you play there in September, because the Raiders played there, the infield was all cut up because they played two or three football games on it. And they, they weren't able to repair it. So, you know, it never was a great place to play. Hitters didn't like it because there was a lot of foul territory. Yeah, that's but, how it was uh, yeah, I, I think just right now it's because they just have not invested a lot into the uh, into the team, and it kind of looks like they'll uh, uh, they'll go to, to Las Vegas. I think uh, I think if the Oakland situation and the Tampa Stadium situation get resolved quickly, uh, we're going to see baseball go to thirty-two teams. I think that's the commissioner's goal right now. Uh, just means the talent level is going to be diluted a little bit. But, uh, you know, it's the same old thing. If you put a big league uniform on a player that may be a triple-A caliber player, uh, that's the big leagues. And he's going to make uh, 800000 a year minimum here pretty quick. So the Players Association would be all for that. Uh, so I, I think that's true. Oakland has had plenty of chances. And they just haven't been able to, to put it together with a new stadium and and so when I see the attendance for some of those games, two, three thousand, it's sad. Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's sad actually to look at Tampa and with the record they have and uh, play, you know, draw teams that draw like the Red Sox, Tigers, or uh, Yankees. They go in there and they're drawing nine, ten thousand people. That's that's sad when you got other teams that aren't playing that well and they're still, you know, Philadelphia. You're going to see thirty, forty thousand. Boston's always. In the 30s, uh, you know, the other the other teams there are, are still the uh, Yankees, and I think the Braves are drawing pretty well. So despite their record, they're still playing, uh, drawing uh, good attendance. But I think overall, the actual at-the-park attendance will go down again. There's just too many other attractions, and where baseball makes up for it revenue-wise is going to be their streaming and, and things they do away from the field, signage at the field and uh, uh, partners that invest in the, you know, you see the billboards behind home plate. Oh, sure. Uh, that's where the additional revenue is coming from. Yeah. They're not so concerned about the human in there as they are the, that little revolving advertisement behind the catcher and the umpire with it. So it was, was, it was Oakland that archaic, the, uh, the stadium itself. Or is yeah, it-, it just, it just didn't feel like a ballpark. None of the, uh, none of the cookie cutter, uh, like I played in Philadelphia, and then there was Pittsburgh, St. Louis, Cincinnati, but they still had a bit of a ballpark feel to them. But Oakland uh, just was that big, uh, round uh, building, whatever structure, whatever you want to call it. It just never felt like a baseball park. Yeah. And ironically, I guess it brings us back full circle to our conversation about statistics over that A word that we won't say. The uh, that was the they were the originators of the uh, the Moneyball that yeah that changed yeah, that. you know that baseball different than any other sport um, you know you you statistics could be so deceptive because I mean years ago the old story was what would Ted Williams have hit if he played in Detroit as his home park he probably hit five hundred uh, what would Joe DiMaggio have hit if he played in Fenway Park with that left field wall probably hit a hundred doubles. And uh, that's what makes baseball unique is you play in different ballparks. Wind blows out in Wrigley Field. You hit a fly ball. Look at they just played a couple games in Mexico where 
if you hit a pop fly, it was a home run. Yeah. You know, and that helps the hitter and it goes against the pitcher's war. <laughs> and, you know, you go out there, who was it Darvish or somebody went out there one inning, gave up seven or eight runs. Yeah. They were just t- touching the ball and it was flying out. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what makes the game unique. And that's why, uh, I mean, I still think the eye test is much better than the uh, getting things off a sheet of paper. That's right. The scientific method is uh, they do it in reverse. They yeah. it's something they want to prove and create a formula to do so. Well, I got I, I do have one more question for you. I lied, um, and I apologize for keeping you even longer. No, I, I I enjoy it. That's fine. It's, it's, always, it's always good talking baseball. It's in our oh, blood. Oh, this one this one's off the baseball topic though. This one is I want to hear how your stairway to heaven came along. I knew you're, you're playing guitar right now and you were, you're about to embark upon that song. Is that correct? No. Well, the one I was, uh, the one I'm working out of the chords to uh, knock, knock, knocking on oh, heaven's okay. door. Wrong. And when, you were, when you were playing your, um, your intro music today and Kevin wanted Zach Brown, I love to go on YouTube and watch the highway men. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, yeah. Chris Christopherson and Johnny Cash. Again, I just love to I love to sit them and uh, sit there and watch them pick their guitar because like as a baseball player, I would watch pitchers motions and try to pick up things. Now I'm trying to figure out how these guys strum that guitar and play it the way they do. So, yeah, I put, you know, guitars like pitching, you, you can't really practice for a straight hour because of the way you have to coil your wrist and and curl your fingers and so forth. So I'll practice like when we get done here, I'll probably strum for 10 or 15 minutes and then I'll go hit a few golf balls and then I'll come back and strum some more. Nice. Sounds like a relaxing afternoon, a little espresso in between, right? Yeah. What what haven't we covered today, Jim? What what did I miss that you maybe want to get as a parting shot to our audience here? Uh, I can't think of anything we've missed. I'm just uh, I'm just happy that baseball is getting uh you know, a good reputation for being entertaining again because of the pace of play. And uh, I hope that the, they overcome these little glitches where the pitchers, you know, I, I really have to laugh at it. I just can't understand that where the pitchers are going to be fatigued because they have to work too, too fast. Yeah. Uh, but just, uh, you know, keep watching the, uh, the great young uh, stars that are out there. They're all over the league. I mean, now the, the twins with Byron Buxton, who's come into his own and has really become quite a force in uh, in the league. And uh, you know, there are other. You know, I think it was at uh, who's who's the star? Is it Carroll out in Arizona? Yeah, I'm tremendous. Yeah. So the athletic ability is off the charts, and I think that's despite some of the ways they handle the game that are disappointing. It's uh, it's great to see the way these athletes can perform when they're on the field. I hope they can, we can get over the injury factor and keep more of them on the field. Yeah. You would think humans have endured far greater things than a pitch clock in in the history of the world, right? We think we can overcome the fatigue of that. Well, I I appreciate the time you gave us, say almost an hour to our audience and want to thank, thank the audience. We got over 17,000 subscribers as of this morning, download, listen, like subscribe, rate and review. We'll keep giving you the great content like on our show here, Cots Corner. Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher is our favorite for streaming devices. If you have another one, let me know. I'll subscribe to it. Continue to engage us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I love waking up in the morning and seeing all the questions we have in our inbox here. And I will get back to everybody, I promise, every day. 
72 countries, grassroots, all the way to Major League Baseball front offices. I love how candid you are, Jim, and I appreciate your approach to the game and and, uh, the the way you go about presenting it because we do have people's ears right now, grassroots, all the way to front offices. So I hope they're listening, especially to your show. Because all we're trying to do is build that better baseball IQ. And I know I get smarter every week that we have this show. And if it's, it's, uh, I don't think it's just me because our audience is really engaging with your stuff. So thanks again, Jim. I appreciate everything you do. My pleasure. I look forward to seeing you in a couple of days. That'll be great. I'm looking forward to it too. And with that, episode 172, Cots Corner. Have a great weekend and we'll see you next week. Till it's gone, like it or not.